This is How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling. How Sound is co-produced by PRX and Transom. I'm Rob Rosenthal. You're about to find out why I clearly have one of the best jobs in radio. As the uh, lead instructor for Transom's traveling workshops, I travel the country and meet really cool people who want to learn how to tell stories and sound. And then on top of that, there are these ear-catching stories the students produce in just one week. Now, in this episode of How Sound, three stories from Marfa, Texas. Each was recently made by students in the Transom Traveling Workshop hosted by Marfa Public Radio. First up, well, this may take a bit for you to wrap your head around. It's a story about the owners and curators of a museum, the Marfa Holocaust and Historical Model Ship Museum. I'll say that a little slower. The Marfa Holocaust and Historical Model Ship Museum. Mm-hmm. How do those two things go together? Well, Aaron Napperstek dove into the museum and that unusual combo, and I'll let him tell you about it. Last Friday, Kim and Peggy Thornsberg put out a cake, filled a bowl of punch, and threw open the doors to the Marfa Holocaust and Historical Model Ship Museum. Yes, a ship museum in the high desert of southwest Texas. And yes, a Holocaust museum in a tiny town with no rabbi, no synagogue, and no Jewish community. That's all there is to it. Shalom. <laughs> yeah, we have to bless everybody before they go in. And this is the declaration in Hebrew of Jewish state. They, they tell me, I've had several Jews come by and say, oh my, Trim, my, you silver-haired, 68 years old, Kim carries the no-nonsense bearing of a former Coast Guard pilot, but with a twinkle uh, in his blue eyes. This, to me, is really where the Aliyah began, and that's with the SS St. Louis in 1939. Kim's museum features models of actual ships used by Jewish refugees fleeing Nazi persecution in Europe during World War II. In Hebrew, this historical episode is known as the Aliyah Bet, or as a Texan pronounces it, Aliyah Bet. Often packed into rickety broken ships, nearly 2,000 Jewish refugees drowned at sea, escaping the Nazis. Tens of thousands more were detained or sent back to their deaths in Europe. Pretty much every nation closed their doors to the Jews. Kim built an addition on his house for the museum, and it aims to tell the story of the Aliyah Bet through model ships, all meticulously handcrafted by Kim. When I build a boat, I already know the story. I already have pictures of the people that were on there. Can you just even possibly imagine what I'm thinking when I'm building that boat, knowing that people either lived or died? This isn't your typical Holocaust museum. And some of the ideas that Kim presents, well, they're pretty unconventional. What was the primary cause of World War II? And it wasn't uh, natural, it was supernatural. Perhaps most unconventional, Kim and Peggy Thornsberg, they're not even Jewish. Is this not the most peculiar thing you've ever seen? Growing up in Marfa, Kim first got into building model ships around fifth grade. Everything I built, I did just from my thoughts, out of my head. I had no kits, nothing. Kim and Peggy got married in 1985. They had two kids. Kim didn't have time to build model ships anymore. But a new interest emerged, driven by Peggy. Judaism. I have just known. I have known and known and known that I have a a Jewish soul. I know, I know, I know, I know. Kim and Peggy's kids celebrated all of the Jewish holidays at home. Grew up my children on all the festivals and, of course, 
they both completely reject this now. My son thinks it's absolutely nuts. My daughter, she's dating a Jewish boy, so maybe. Sure sounds like a Jewish mother. So why not convert? Make it official. I don't live near anybody. I don't have any accessibility. I would. If I was in Brooklyn, New York like you, I would have done it 30 years ago. The idea for the Marfa Holocaust and Historical Model Ship Museum was born at a used book sale in 2007. They're having a book sale at the big San Antonio library. So we went and they had, I mean, thousands of books down in the basement. But lo and behold, she didn't pick out two books because she knows I've been wanting to get back into building ships. It had been 30 years since I built a model. One of the books Peggy picked out that day told the story of how 400 Jewish refugees escaped from Europe on a decrepit paddle-wheeled riverboat called the Pencho. When I read that Pencho, I knew that I had a collection of ships to build. Before entering his workshop, Kim says a prayer. A half-finished model of a cruise ship takes up most of Kim's workbench. This is the SS St. Louis, and the hole's completed. Now, I had this thing... In 1939, 900 Jewish refugees escaped Germany on the St. Louis, infamously denied entry to the United States, and sent back to Europe. More than a quarter of the passengers ended up dying in the war. I use, uh, well, like cherry wood, basswood, uh, walnut, uh, maple, all those... And then you spray this, it crinkles. It makes it look like an old, old ship. Beautiful. It's beautiful. See how smooth that is? It looks like metal. For the museum's grand opening, Kim and Peggy mailed out about 100 invitations. 27 people showed up. Kim was happy with the turnout. Peggy, not so much. I emailed every single Holocaust museum in the United States of America, a lot of the people we invited did not come. So that sent a message right across the bow. And I was pretty upset about that. And then I was upset about Just an hour north of the Mexican border, um, Peggy sees parallels between the story of the Aliyah Bet and today's immigration and refugee crises. We have people crossing the border every night. We have friends just south of town who own a ranch, and they see the little flashlights in the dark passing over, and they'll come and knock on their door. And do you know what they do? They give them a meal. What do you do? You give them a meal. Kim just wants to make sure that more people know the Aliyah Bet story. But you know what? If, if little kids come in here, Boy Scout troops, whatever, and they see these ships, it's going to leave an impression on them. They're always going to remember that word, Aliyah Bet. Someday they might look it up. For Kim, building the ships of the Aliyah Bet is a spiritual calling. And the museum? When I go in there, I think it's a holy place. I do. I just think it's a holy place. Because I know that, you know, even though I built it with my hands, come on now. Who, who put that on my heart to do that? I'm a Gentile, for heaven's sakes. So I know the Lord has something to do with it. And I know when I build a ship and I look at it, I think it's beautiful. I just, I look, but... I know that he had something to do with me building that ship. So that's the way I feel when I walk in there. So I think it's a holy habitation, and I do all my praying now out there. It's like a, like a synagogue, if you will. I only have synagogue. According to ancient Jewish custom, you need at least 10 men to hold Jewish prayers. In Hebrew, it's called a minion. Kim doesn't have a minion in Marfa, but he's got nine Aliyah Bet ships in his museum. 
Nine chips plus Kim makes 10. It's an unconventional minion, but you gotta think that it's enough for Kim's prayers to be heard. For the Transom Traveling Workshop in Marfa, Texas, I'm Aaron Naberstack. That is a doozy of a story, right? So gracefully told, especially the ending. And Aaron's graceful writing was important. As Aaron suggested in his story, some of Kim and Peggy's thinking about Jewish culture and history is unorthodox. In light of that, Aaron was keen for listeners to not write the couple off. So he attempted to balance their unusual perspectives with their endearing qualities and genuine interest in Judaism. To help thread that needle, Aaron told me he pictured a group of people from Marfa listening to the story with Peggy and Kim sitting right there listening too. In an email that Aaron wrote to me, he said, perhaps this is a good thing to imagine as a general rule. Think of your subjects listening to the story in a room with their friends, family, and colleagues. You're listening to How Sound, the podcast about audio storytelling. I'm Rob, and I'm featuring three stories from a transom traveling workshop in Marfa, Texas. Let's jump into the next story. No introduction. Listen to this. Okay, now listen to this one. And check this out. That's the sound of Christine Olenicek. She's an artist from Marfa, but not the kind of artist whose work you're going to see in a gallery on Highway 90. Christine is a sound artist, and somewhere in each of those pieces is the sound of her doing something most people just usually tune out, It's the sound a pencil makes when it moves across paper. The sound of drawing? Yeah, it's a thing. It's Christine's thing. And for 30 years, it's been her life's work. You know, at first they might scratch their head about, really, you make sound from pencils? Christine says it's only when you see the process that you really get it. So she takes me into her studio to show me how she works. It's like a 16 by 20 space. The pencils and pens, they all make different sounds, depending on the different softness, the texture of the paper. Like I often use a Reeves BFK paper. It's a really smooth, kind of thick, soft paper. The hard pencil, it makes a different sound than a, a big, fat, soft one. Yeah, here's an H, and then I'm looking for maybe a 6B. She places a clean piece of paper over a round standing drum. I'll play something acoustically for you. She starts to move the pencil in a circular motion on the page. Now she's tapping the pencil on the paper, changing the rhythm. On the other side of her studio is a standing easel with a thin piece of plywood where the paper would normally go. She moves her pencil over the wood in the form of a figure eight, over and over. It has the the pulse of a heartbeat. And I'm really interested in using this as kind of the 
the beat, the drum, this sort of drone. I can count it out. One, two. Christine has a vision for all this. Over the years, she's experimented with amplifying the drawing sound and recording it. Next, she wants to add video, attract a crowd, and let people see and hear what she does. I really want to fill the whole room in an operatic way with the sounds and visions and, and video so that my hand fills the whole wall. The sound of it fills your ear. Uh, you feel it in your chest like you're at a rock concert. The floor trembles. For Christine, sound is the ultimate language. It's her way of connecting with the world and something higher. It all started with a rock concert in the 1960s. The first concert I ever went to was Sly and the Family Stone. I was 12 or so, so it took a lot of machinations for me to be able to get to that place because my parents were so strict. But there I was, like, rushing the stage and feeling the bass and feeling all that kind of life that came from that kind of music. It just felt like a completely immersive experience. It felt like church. This hasn't always been a smooth path. Christine's never sold her work. She has other creative projects, too, but none of them are very lucrative. People ask me over the years, like, do you make a living as an artist? And really, the more I think about it, the more I think I don't make a living, I make a life. Last year, to save money, Christine decided to start making stuff. I made several dresses, t-shirts, I made my own underwear, uh, I knitted socks, I made bags, I made my husband shorts, t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, a hoodie. She doesn't go out a lot, which can make it tough to connect with people here. If you don't mind me asking, are, are you lonely here? Yeah, yeah, I am. I, I mean, I spend most of my days at home, in silence. My husband works and he'll come back, but I mean, for the most part, I spend a good six, eight hours by myself. And that's, that's a lot sometimes. I mean, if I had more money, I'd do more. Here, if you don't eat out, people think you've left town, assume you've been to Europe or something, and really, I was just home. There was this one time when Christine really was out there three years ago at a six-week residency in Kansas. She met a few drummers in town, and they agreed to perform with her. Here, she told them, use pencils instead of drumsticks. She set them up on these hollow wooden boxes she built herself. She brought in some more traditional percussion, a fife, and on one grand night, she performed. We were in my uh, studio, which was an old warehouse, this 4,000-square-foot studio space. I think there were seven instruments set up, and then we had 40 people in the audience. Children, uh, babies were there, people in their 80s, people that were just workers and scientists. It was all very formal. And then as people came in, board members, kids, people I'd, teachers, people I'd met in the community, uh, and I was um, being the hostess and greeting and hugging everyone, uh, it, was, it was like preparing for a wedding. And you could have dropped a pin 
in that place. I mean, people were so quiet and attentive. We, uh, we vowed together that we would, myself and the band, that we would go out loud and fast. That's how we wanted to end it. And so when we brought in the drum and the fife and uh, really just thought, let's just really let them have it and let them feel it in their hearts and their chests. You have to listen closely, but Christine is in there. In the warehouse, she's front and center with the band, drawing with fervor on top of a drum, the sound amplified in the room. Yeah, yeah. People stood up. People stood up and... and People came up to me and said they'd never seen or heard anything like that before in their lives, that they would never think about drawing the same. This moment was so important, she still drives around with the playlist of that show in her car. She says it's like a talisman. I'm really proud of being able to have transformed my life into something other than a factory worker, which looked like... Uh, That would have been my fate if I would have just kind of stayed where I grew up. I'm proud that I was able to stubbornly take on a life that was about ideas more than anything else. I'm tenacious. I think that's my superpower. For the Transom Traveling Workshop in Marfa, Texas, I'm Rachel Templeton. What's cool about that piece, other than the great sound, is how much Christine opened up to Rachel in the interview. As the Kitchen Sisters have said, a microphone is a magic stick. And what they mean is that people often feel comfortable saying things to a stranger when a mic is present that they might not say if the mic wasn't there. And so Christine's openness might be explained by that. In Rachel's case, she had a mic, of course, but she also tried something in the interview to help Christine talk freely that I've not heard many producers do. Remember in the story that moment when the crowd vigorously applauded for Christine's performance? Well, Rachel brought a clip of that recording with her to the interview and played it to help take Christine back to that event. So instead of just asking Christine to think back on that time and picture the performance, Rachel used the sound of that moment to help prompt memories. That's pretty genius, right? Before we hear the last story from Marfa, I just want to mention that Transom is offering several traveling workshops this winter. House of Pod is hosting us in Denver. In Seattle, the workshop will be held at KUOW. Nashville Public Radio is welcoming the workshop for a second time and will be in Santa Fe thanks to KSFR. So if you're thinking, hmm, I'd like to go to one of these, you can find out what you need to know at transom.org. The application deadline for all four workshops is August 31st. So hurry up. All right, one last story from Marfa. This one was produced by Martin Brusowitz Hernandez. Martin's story is about fracking for oil and gas in West Texas. In particular, he profiled a couple who claims their health has been seriously impacted by fracking near their home. Now, usually during the traveling workshops, I advise students to avoid stories on controversial topics. We really don't have time to fully report a story that should include more viewpoints. 
And that's true for this story, I'd say. If Martin had a few days to report, I'm sure he would have interviewed people in the industry, physicians, other people living in the area, and so on. He's a seasoned Swedish print journalist, after all. But like I said, there's no way in a week-long workshop that you could interview all those people. But even without those perspectives, this story is still a compelling, thoughtful portrait, well worth listening to. There's solid, active tape, excellent quotes, and just wonderful writing. A word about his narration before we hear the piece. In fact, I'll just read to you what Martin wrote me. One thing I found very hard, he said, is to tell a story with my own voice without acting or trying to be somebody I'm not. But at the same time, try and tell it in a captivating way. Now, in his email, he went on to mention his Swedish accent and how he wanted to, quote, pronounce words more or less the way they're supposed to sound, and on top of that, try to apply some kind of melody that makes sense to an American audience. It's just hard, he says. But to have somebody sit in with me as I read the narration, listening in real time and giving advice, was great. Here's Martin's story. Yeah, you gotta buckle up. Sue Franklin wheels her Chevy out of Balmeray. We're driving to her house. She's about to show me what ruined almost everything. It was about two years ago they started coming in. Uh, just a few. And then all of a sudden it was just madhouses. They just started coming in constant. The nights used to be so different. The sky was dark. You could see the Milky Way as clear as in a textbook, she says. It's not like that anymore. Things have changed. The night sky, but also other things, like her health. She points out the side window. Now here's another facility over here, and I'm not sure what this one is. That was the first one that went up. Now they're drilling over here. Sue lives with her husband Jim Franklin on a ranch 10 miles north of Balmeray. The oil and gas industry first showed up in 2016. As hydraulic fracturing has developed and gotten cheaper, the drilling for oil and natural gas has reached new areas. Used to be that when you would drive to Odessa, as soon as you got to Penwell, you could tell you were there because it stunk so bad. Well, now it's here, and we live in it. There are wells all around her house now. The night before, she counted 17 flares from her porch. The landscape has been disrupted in other ways, too. Big piles of sand and dirt the size of two-story houses dot the landscape. And then there's the traffic. Big trucks now run back and forth from dusk till dawn. I'm going to go down in the ditch. We're half a mile down the road from her house. Safer to get out down here. There's a well here she wants to show me. It was installed about a year ago. It's the one that has caused Sue and her husband the most trouble, she says. A bright flare burns from the top. It's really loud. Hear it? Yeah. I just feel sad because they've stolen my... What? Yeah, we're good. Just, just checking out the area. An oil worker in a truck interrupts. He wants to see what we're up to. Anyways, um, it makes me realize how much of my nature that they have stolen from me. That it's not nature anymore. You want to go on down to the house and meet my husband? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've owned this place since 2004, I guess. This is Sue's husband, Jim. And... Uh, it's just not right for a company to come in to a place you planned on retiring peacefully and leaving, living the rest of your life. And they come in and just destroy everything. Jim sits in the living room. They have a one-story house with a messy yard. 
with vast fields all around. There's a trailer on the property, a friend lives in it. They have two dogs, a few cats, three goats. There's a donkey too. And these days, there's also a smell. Describe the gas, what it smells like. Rotten eggs. Worse than rotten eggs. Yeah, but that's kind of, you know, it gets you in the ballpark. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's one morning, Sue had already left for work. And when I walked out the back door, I retched. It was so bad. And, uh, you know. The porch door slams behind us. One of their goats sticks his head up over a fence. Beyond that, the fields. At the horizon, the mountains. But their view is disappearing, they say. Well, you can barely see the mountains through the haze. And until all this started, you could see them perfectly all the time. It was a beautiful sight. <laughs> <laughs> That's their donkey, Apple. That's Apple. In fact, when you look right straight at where Balmeray is, you can't even see the mountains. And you're saying this is new? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It gets worse weekly. Mostly they worry about their health, though. Three months after the well down the road was put up, Sue's nose started bleeding. Then night coughs. It never occurred to her that the well might be responsible. Her doctor connected the dots. It kind of clicked in. He says, you live over there in all this mess, don't you? And I go, yeah, I'm over in Balmeray. He says, that's right in the middle of the oil fields. I said, yeah. He put her on medication, and now Sue and Jim strongly believe that the oil and gas wells are at fault. For the nosebleeds, the coughing, and headaches, too. I've broken a lot of bones and taken a lot of bumps and bruises. But sickness just isn't part of my vocabulary. And uh, this has really drugged me down. And he's a very unhappy camper about it. Yes, I am. The health effects of fracking and living near an oil or gas well are debated. Some studies suggest risks. Others say they are low. Jim says that all the uncertainty, the not knowing, is a major stress factor. It, uh, it affects you mentally. Uh, the fact of, am I going to live through the night? Is my heart going to give out because of this stuff tonight? Uh, and that's a stressor. It definitely is. They're sick, they say. The night skies are gone, the view of the mountains blocked by smog. They can't let the cool breeze blow through open windows at night. Sue and Jim say nature is not nature anymore. Even the animals have taken off. Uh, we had um, roadrunners and quail all over. Dove. The doves were here, but there's one that nested in the garage out there. That was a swallow. A swallow. We had swallows all over, and they're not here anymore. The rabbits are gone. The deer are gone. Yeah. Seems like almost everything is gone. So what about the Franklins? They have considered leaving too. Maybe go to Albuquerque? But they have a small business, two houses, animals. They're rooted in Balmeray. All the memories, all the people, this is where their family is buried. If I can't stay here, where am I going? What am I doing? Uh, Why? So it's a big question. What do I do? Sue and Jim don't know what to do. They're thinking about opening an RV park for oil field workers. They keep in touch with their doctors and they keep their windows and doors closed. 
In the meantime, the oil industry moves closer. Right across the road from their house, less than a hundred yards away, a new well is being constructed. For the Transom Traveling Workshop in Marfa, this is Martin Brusowitz Hernandez. I have a slew of how sounds in the production hopper. I think you're really going to like them. For instance, years ago, I interviewed Phoebe Judge soon after she started the podcast Criminal. A year or so later, I checked in with her after Criminal joined Radiotopia. Well, it's been a while since we last talked, so I decided it was time to check in with Phoebe again. She and I talked about Criminal's crazy success and how she's managed to produce a second podcast series, This Is Love. Also on How Sounds Soon, producer Bianca Gaver tells me about culling through hundreds of hours of diary tape for her documentary, Two Years with Franz. Plus, Vanessa Lowe from The Nocturne Podcast, the producers of Bundyville, and NPR's John Burnett. I'm pretty excited about what's coming down the pike on How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling from PRX and Transom. Thankfully, John Barth marks up my scripts. They need it. And I record at WCAI in Woods Hole. This is Rob Rosenthal. Thanks for listening. From PRX. And Transom.org.